All right, good morning. We're beginning a, uh, a new Sunday School series this morning. A series of uh, a study through our Confession of Faith, the uh, Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. Um, basically, what we're going to do is going to take the next year, I've planned it out so that we will finish uh, by the end of the year next year, so it's going to be a pretty long, pretty protracted study uh, through the Confession of Faith. Uh, but in case you didn't know, uh, the London Baptist Confession, the Second London of 1689, is the doctrinal standard. Uh, it is our Confession of, of Faith here at CRBC. And so kind of the goal for this series is ultimately to, to introduce you to it. To introduce you to it as a summary of the Christian faith, as a summary of what we believe, and part of the goal as well is to show you, and uh, my goal is to kind of convince you of why it's important, why it's important to know, why it's important to, to understand. Uh, the goal in that sense being to know what we believe and while, uh, why we believe it. Uh, copies of our confession are available free on the back table. Uh, if you don't have one. And let me just say off the bat as well, it's a mini systematic theology. And so uh, it really covers every major doctrine of the Christian faith. And so if you've never read it, or if you're not familiar with it, uh, trust me when I say read through it and uh, you will see exactly why it is so important. It's been so beloved in uh, Reformed and Baptist history for so long. Uh, goal today, really, uh, I want to revisit today a few things from our Sunday School series last year uh, when we taught through the creeds. Uh, this was, um, I think, November of last year, so some of you were here before, some of you may remember that. I want to revisit a few of those things today as a kind of introduction to this series. Um, I'm going to revisit things such as the purpose of a confession. In the church, uh, why it's necessary for a church to hold to a confession of faith, um, and how perhaps how a confession of faith ought to function in the life um, of the body, of the local body of the church. So that's kind of the goal for today. It's going to be a little bit of review. I'm going to throw in a few new things as well, just to keep you on your toes. Um, but uh, just a, a broad introduction of confessions in general. Next week will be kind of an, uh, a specific introduction to this particular confession. And then two weeks from today, we'll jump right in with uh, chapter one of, of on Holy Scripture. So that's kind of our guide. Um, <clears throat> let me begin by just asking the question some of you might remember. What is a creed? What is a confession? Are they the same thing? Are they different? Who can give me a, 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 a definition? Who paid attention last year when we covered this? What is a creed? Ah, excellent. A creed literally is I believe. And it is a statement of what you must believe to be a Christian. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 
right? Uh, the creeds of the church are, are, are summaries of essential Christian doctrine. What then is a confession? How does it differ? What's a confession? The statement of what you should believe. Statement of what you should believe. Creed is personal. It's brief. A confession is public. It's a larger treatment. It's fuller. And it's something that we're saying you should believe, but not something that you must believe in order to be a Christian. And that's important when we get to the very end today and we think about uh, how a confession functions in the life of the church. We're not saying that you have to believe this in order to be a Christian. We're saying we believe the Scriptures teach this. And you might differ on a few of the doctrines in, therein. Uh, but it's a fuller treatment of what we believe Scripture teaches and what we as a church, um, um, how should I put it, announce to the world this is what we believe and this is what we think you ought to believe. Mark? Yes, there are definitely creeds in the Bible. I, I think we see the remnants of a confession, but you're right. Um, most specifically, there are creeds in the Bible. Very uh, brief statements of, 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 of Christian doctrine, and, and I'm going to get to those in just a minute. Uh, another key here is, again, it's already been brought out, but individuals take on the creed most specifically, but churches, in this sense, testify in the confession of faith. Now, whether we confess privately or we confess um, as part of a church, it, it gets to the nature that what we believe is a matter of public record. Uh, don't believe our culture. Don't believe how we've privatized faith in our culture that it's just between me and God. But Christianity is, is a public religion. It is a public faith. It is public in Scripture. It ought to be public now. Confessions really kind of get to that. So, so I want to kind of communicate here. Individuals believe, but churches testify. So, thinking about how um, confessions function. To give a, a brief summary, they, can, they, they function in a positive and a negative sense as well. One positive purpose of uh, or how a confession functions is that it states and defines our beliefs and how we relate um, to others. Like, how do we relate to uh, Covenant College? How do we relate to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church one mile from us? How do we relate to Our Lady of the Mount, the Roman Catholic Church, two miles from us? All you got to do is read our confession and you see right there how we relate to a Presbyterian compared to how we relate to a Roman Catholic. So, and I'm really on the positive sense here, so I'll get to the negative in a minute. But it states and defines our beliefs and how we relate to others. Um, a confession also serves to unite Christians to other Christians in the past and in the present. 
Same way. Or same illustration. We have a union with um, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Chattanooga. We had a joint service with them two weeks ago. Uh, we are united with them because on the essential matters of faith and practice, we are in agreement with them. And our confessions acknowledge that, reflect that. Um, but not just the church now. We can look back and look at churches hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and see as well. Our confession matches their confession. We are united in that sense. So it unites us to Christians of other times and other places. Um, Negatively, confessions create doctrinal boundaries it differentiate, differentiates between truth and error. So on the positive sense, it shows us who we are united with, who we are in agreement with, who we can worship with. But of course, on the other end, on the other side, on the other hand, it shows us who is not a part of the greater body of Christ. Who is not a part of our faith community. It distinguishes what we believe the Scriptures teach regarding who is a believer and who is an unbeliever. Defines who is part of the community um, and it protects that citizenship, citizenship. I can't talk today. Let me try this. Um, kind of like, like a passport. Passport, you know, gives you access to certain benefits when you're in a foreign land. A confession of faith kind of acknowledges who we are and both protects our citizenship and gives us positive aspects in the greater body of Christ. Protects from doctrinal disease as well. Here, uh, we think about, you know, we're not fighting the same battles over and over again. I, I don't know if you've ever run into somebody, for example, who has questioned uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, I have before. I, I ran into a, a, a man one time who claimed to love the Puritans and uh, considered himself and was worshiping in a Protestant uh, church in the Reformed tradition. But he believed that the Trinity was, was um, heresy. He believed it was wrong. He believed it was a, a tremendous error. And he kind of weaseled his way into the church and was, was affecting um, um, and disrupting people and Christians with his doctrine. And, you know, it's, it's like a confession of faith helps us not to fight those same battles over and over and over again. You know, he's going to come with the same scriptures, with the same arguments that, you know, for example, um, that, that Arius brought, you know, 1,500 years ago. He's going to bring up the same tired, um, uh, refuted arguments that 
Uh, heretics have always brought up when they, when they attack or deny the Trinity. And it's not like we have to just go back to Scripture and refight those battles again. We have a statement of faith and we say we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of these battles already fought and won. And that preserves the peace and unity of the church and, of course, guards against the intrusion of, of doctrinal disease. What is it? I think it was, uh, I think it was Shakespeare, actually, who said that every wicked man has a verse to support his behavior. Every heretic has a favorite set of verses to support their heresy. If you just say, we believe the Bible alone, you're going to be fighting these battles over and over and over again. Positive and negative function. Another way in which uh, our confession functions, it's related to the positive nature, but it gives us a kind of theological identity. Um, I said it before, it helps us relate to others. Um, it helps us know who we can cooperate with and who we probably should not cooperate with, who we agree with, who we don't agree with. It kind of answers the question um, in a sense of like, who am I as a Christian? Like, do I stand in the stream of, of orthodoxy? Do I stand in the stream of the Christian faith that goes all the way back 2,000 years and goes all the way back even before that? Or am I somebody who, unbeknownst to me, is entirely different? than the church historic do what i believe and do i what i practice is, is this am i something different am i something new am i something disconnected to the historic church so it kind of gives a sense of identity the greater body of christ that stretches back thousands of years um, it helps us answer the question i really harped on this in our series last time so you can find those uh, sessions on sermon audio, but it helps us answer the question like, when did your church begin? Did your church begin with your pastor or your parents or your nation or your generation or your ethnicity? Well, as we will see as we go through our confession, um, the particular Baptists adopted not only um, the Presbyterian and the Congregational um, confessions of faith of their day, but they weave in the historic creeds as well. And they, they build upon statements of faith that go back long, long before them. And when you see this, you realize, okay, they're pulling elements from the ancient church, from the church fathers. And they're pulling elements from even medieval Christianity. And they're pulling elements from um, their own day as well. And it helps answer the question like, that, that we stand in this kind of um, ancient community of believers 
that our faith is not a modern invention or innovation. That our church is not just something that like you can trace back a hundred years and that's it. They tie us to the universal church. Helps us answer the question, who am I as a Christian and when did my church begin? Gives us that comfort of the ancient community. Um, It also helps us, I mentioned this before, but it helps us protect the core elements of truth um, in our day, which is necessary for the well-being of the church. This is, again, gives a sense of theological community. And the point that I want to make here is maybe within the body itself. Uh, For example... A confession of faith helps protect you from me. And that's important. Not just me, but Pastor Rob. Not just me and Pastor Rob, but any other deacon or elder who might be um, appointed to leadership in our church. It helps protect the people from the idiosyncrasies um, or the personal preferences or the ignorance or the heresy of those teaching and preaching in their midst. You don't have to wonder, what do I believe? And that's a dangerous and very common, but but kind of a a, a dangerous um, characteristic of the church nowadays. It's all about what does the pastor believe? Well, do we wear head coverings or not? Well, what does Pastor Nathan think? Well, are we all-mill? Are we pre-mill? Are we post-mill? Let's go ask Pastor Nathan or Pastor Rob. Now, I'm speaking to two areas that aren't detailed in our confession. And uh, I do acknowledge in some sense that, you know, it's always good and wise to go and ask the pastor. But my point is that the buck doesn't stop with me. Or with Rob. Particularly on the core matters of the faith. You don't have to wonder what I believe. I I vowed in my ordination vows that if I do not believe the confession, or if I depart from the teaching of the confession, I have a duty and responsibility to acknowledge that, and ultimately to step down unless the Constitution is changed. And I can't change that myself. We have to agree to do that together. Does that make sense? It helps you know what's going to be coming from this pulpit. And helps you know that if something else comes from this pulpit that's not part of this confession, we have a problem. So it preserves the truth, it clarifies the truth, it draws lines between uh, true and false doctrine. It protects you from the, the pastors from error and it gives clarity to what it is that we believe and what is the standard of teaching in this church. Another question that it answers in this theological identity, how do um, how do we, that should we, how do we prepare the next generation to faithfully carry the torch of truth? You know, we planted this church six years ago. 
And um, I've often, often, I often pray and think about the fact that um, I ask the Lord that this church would far outlive my lifetime. Like, you know, when we plant this church, my prayer and my hope is that this church will endure until Christ returns. Uh, you know, I just walk out here and you'll see the cornerstone to the left on the outside of our building and you'll see that this church building was built in uh, 1945. And um, sadly, the church that was here did not last. Uh, this building was empty when we came in here in 2016. It had been empty for three years. My prayer, my hope, should be yours as well, that this church endures two, four, six, eight hundred years, a thousand years from now. There will still be a Reformed Baptist church on Lookout Mountain. Well, if we, want, if we pray for that, we need to take steps to help secure that or to work toward that. And confession of faith serves that purpose. We take what we believe and we pass it down. Because just like we saw with the, um, with the statue from Daniel, 3, uh, Daniel 2 last week, uh, inevitably, kingdoms tend towards deterioration. Right? We're watching it in America right now. Like, this is the decline of Western civilization. I hate to break it to you. All right? And if you study the history of Rome, you see, hey, wow, exactly what happened with Rome when they ruled the world is happening to America right now. It actually is on an accelerated pace. Um, well, the same, sadly, is true of churches as well. They tend to naturally decline. But how it always starts is with doctrinal decline. Always, without exception. I mean, look at the Presbyterian church in America. Not to pick on the Presbyterians, because us Baptists have plenty of problems. But when they came over here, uh, there was one Presbyterian church in America, and that's it. And they held the Westminster Confession of Faith, modified to make you know room for separation of church and state. But they held to one confession of faith. There was one church. And if you trace the history of Presbyterianism, uh, it all started, ultimately, I, as best as I can tell, when they started to compromise on the sovereignty of God and salvation and original sin. We're talking about John, Jonathan Edwards type uh, period of time. Well, it's too hard to talk. It's harsh to talk about God being sovereign, predestining people to salvation and, and original sin where we are kept, we are, we are held liable to Adam's sin even though like, we weren't there. That's just harsh. Uh, we're, we need to be all about love. We need to be more about love and positivity. That was what was going on, you know, 200 years ago. And that was, as far as I can tell, the first step off. And now, like, look at the Presbyterian Church in America. By and large, it's apostate, except for PCA, the OPC, maybe a couple of others, independents. But by and large, PCUSA. Confession of faith helps us pass down the faith, preserving it for the next generation. And it starts in the church, not the denomination. It starts in the church. Um, 
All right, so that's a brief overview of some of the things I argued last year. Um, before we move on, I'm going to look at some biblical evidence for a confession of faith. Um, any questions or comments? Any thoughts? Again, the history of Presbyterianism in America, there have been many, many, many splits. Um, and typically those splitting retain the confession of faith. I mean, even the PCUSA, if you go on their website, it's still kind of listed on there. But they basically say, we don't really believe this. It's kind of a historic document. Um, you know, I mean, they invite other religions to participate in their general assembly. Um, we know, of course... You know, they are pro-homosexual, they are pro-abortion, um, they are pro-women um, ordination, um, all of those things, PCUSA, they, they are, they are um, ecumenical in the full sense, they are universalists in the full sense as well, all faiths, lead, faiths lead, lead to God, but they still have that confession of faith as kind of a historic summary of what they believe. Every time they split, they've kept the confession of faith. So, and that's a good point, because it's not just the confession of faith. Uh, as I always say, the confession is only as good as the people who uphold it. Uh, I'm not laying the blame entirely on, well, they don't have a confession of faith. Um, but by their own acknowledgement, they began to compromise on that confession of faith. And say, okay, well, you don't have to believe everything. You can discard these few things. And that's still pleasant. I mean, the PCA is fighting that battle right now. If you look at the difference between... This is being recorded. Uh, <laughs> put this up online. If you look at the difference between the PCA and the OPC, the OPC, they have different levels of subscription. What I mean by subscription is, is how, do you, how do you affirm the beliefs in the confession? PCA has like a good faith, um, which... I'm going to be careful, I'm not familiar, I don't have it in front of me, I don't recall right off the top of my head exactly what that means, but basically you have to give a vow of kind of good faith, like I, I agree with the general sense of the confession. But as you know, you might know, like there are a, a several doctrines that you can compromise on and still be a part of PCA. You don't have to believe in six-day creation. Uh, you don't have to believe in what it says about the Sabbath. You don't have to believe what it says about the regular principle of worship. Um, there are several things that you can, I, I guess, compromise on, or you know, the, the OPC is entirely different. Um, they are they're they're strict in that regard, and that's that's kind of you know why they're not part of the same denomination. So every time it's split, and this is true in Baptist circles as well. I'm not just picking on Presbyterians. The issue of what it means to describe. Uh, to subscribe comes up. And what I'm going to argue for as we get into this is, you know, a strict subscription. Um, we believe that 
in our church that all of these things must be affirmed. And while it's okay for someone as a member of the church to differ, of course, it's not okay for an officer to differ. It's not okay for the church as a whole to say, well, we don't really believe this article of confession. Um, but that's probably next week. Anything else? Questions, comments? Dick? So, in the uh, secular area, in politics, the confession is equal to our Constitution. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good illustration. Um, and it's going to, again, I think I'm going to, uh, we're going to get to that a little bit next week. But the issue, I think, with the Constitution is are you an originalist or is the Constitution a living document? So, and that's basically conservative versus liberal right there. A conservative is going to say, I, I hold the Constitution and what they originally intended by that. And that came out in the, the recent Roe versus Wade ruling. Right? The Supreme Court just this year said, you know what? When they said this in the Constitution, they didn't have abortion in mind. While as the pro Roe v. Wade uh, argue, well, um, yeah, uh, the, the, the right to abortion is embedded in the Constitution itself. So the, the conservative Supreme Court ruled in favor of an originalist position. Well, the same is true when we come to a confession of faith as well, because we have lots of people who are reinterpreting the confession according to to modern ideas, modern innovations, modern controversies. And yes, I'm going to argue for an originalist approach. The originalist approach has lasted 350 years. Originalist approach, I believe, best preserves the faith and protects the faith. Because you start down that road of innovation and where do you stop? If love is the most important thing, well, you know, we're getting a really strong push that we ought to love so-called LGBT Christians. And that we ought to, the church... Denominations at large are reevaluating. Should we allow for same sex union? Should we allow for these things? Um, it's all because they start reinterpreting things in light of modern controversies and they let the idea ultimately of love and, and outward peace trump everything. Let's move on. Is there biblical evidence for forming a confession? I'm going to have to be really quick with this. Um, all of this I've taught before in our series last year, but I just want to give you um, a brief over. Is there biblical evidence for forming a confession? Um, if you look at the Passover instructions in Exodus 12, Israel was, was commanded to teach their family what these things meant. And it's clear from the words in that chapter that what God means is not just a bare uh, reciting of the truths of the Passover but an explanation in a way that ought to be carried down. That's a confession of faith. You don't write it down, but you tell your, tell, your, tell your children, this is what we believe. This is what these things mean. And you are, in that sense, 
communicating a confession of faith, explaining scripture in your own words. Um, same thing in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 as well. This is the famous Old Testament creed. Um, our God is one. Um, the Shema. Uh, this was a confession of Israel's faith for every individual, but also for the nation as a whole. Every Jew had to recite this twice a day. It was recited in synagogue worship. It was carried in their phylacteries. God wanted Israel to confess their faith, not just believe it privately, but confess it. And if you look at down in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 6, we see that it was intended to protect Israel, a, a, a theological guardrail, uh, because of all of the polytheism and uh, secretism around them in the ancient Near East. And they were to cling to the fact that God is one. And again, to put this reality, uh, these truths in their own words. Another scriptural example would be Romans 10, 9 through 10. You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Jesus rose from the dead. You shall be saved. Uh, this is a, a submission to his lordship of Christ, that Christ is Lord, not Caesar. That was a dangerous confession in that day. It could have uh, brought on capital punishment if you said somebody other than Caesar is Lord. Uh, but again, it's that expression of faith. It's internal and it's external. And it served to unite the Christians, to publicly identify the Christians, to distinguish truth from error. We have 1 uh, Timothy 3.16, which says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We confess. It was communal. It was corporate. It was public. It wasn't just what I personally believe and privately hold to. And it wasn't just um, the simple bare truth that Jesus is Lord from Romans 10.9. But it's a, a statement that details His humanity and His deity and His ascension and His, and his heavenly reign. And the context for this, if you read just the next verse... Uh, next couple of verses in, in uh, 1 Timothy 4.1, the context is, for some will depart from the faith in the latter days. It, it was a boundary marker. We confess this because the day is coming right now, Paul says, when there are some who will depart from this. You need to know this. It serves to expose the heretics and preserve the church. Probably the most central one though, uh, 2 Timothy 1.13. Paul tells Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Here is a command for the church to put the faith into a pattern of sound words. That essentially is a confession. 
a structured pattern of sound words. And then he references the good deposit as well. The faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Don't just memorize Scripture. Don't just repeat Scripture word for word. Give an explanation of Scripture. Give an interpretation of Scripture. Put it together in a structured, orderly way as a means of guarding the truth. That, in summary, is the biblical evidence, at least uh, what we have time for, for a confession of faith. All right. Moving toward the end here. Why is it necessary for a church to hold a confession of faith? Kind of to kind of summarize everything here. Um, one sense, it's necessary so that we are transparent, so that we are honest, so that we acknowledge to you and to the world what we believe, so that everybody can see it, so that everybody can evaluate it, that there's no doubt what we believe, what we teach, what we hold to. Let me just say that unwritten confessions and unwritten creeds are, are, are the most tyrannical of all. Everybody has a creed. The, the problem is, is when it resides in the head of the pastor, so you don't know if you've crossed the boundaries until you get rebuked by the pastor. Or, you know, it resides unwritten in the church that you don't, you know, you don't know that you've messed up until you confess something that, that all of a sudden people are like, you Whoa, that's wrong. We don't believe that here. You can leave a church guessing. It can leave um, uncertainty as to what is it that the church believes. Everybody has a creed. We, by putting it in a confession, um, acknowledge that it's public. That's all we're doing. It's public. It's verifiable. You can study it. You can read it. You can know what we believe. So it's a matter of honesty to put a confession of faith on paper. And I would argue it's dishonest not to because everybody has a confession. Uh, again, it gives us identity. Uh, I mentioned this before, but it's, a, it's an official identity. As the church, this is who we are. Uh, the scriptures say that the church is um, the pillar and buttress of the truth. If that is true, or for that to be true, a church has to confess something, the truth. I mentioned this before as well, but it gives us a sense of historicity. Uh, even Baptists. Baptists did not begin in 1609 when John Smith baptized himself, which is the famous, I guess, beginning of the Baptist movement in Protestant history. Right? We, we trace our roots back to the early church. That's the strongest argument for credo baptism. Because it was a practice for the first 300 years of the church. It traces our roots to the Reformation and even before that. It gives us this sense of historicity. A uh, sense of unity as well. Again, I'm kind of recapping here. Uh, but doctrinal agreement 
is essential to unity. You know, I read a lot of ministry-related books, and, and there's always, you know, particularly in our day, there is, okay, you have to have fellowship. And the church is to create avenues for fellowship because fellowship is important to unity. And that's very, very true. That's why we have fellowship dinner groups. That's why we have fellowship meals. That's why we have things like a, a, fellow, a Christmas party coming up, right? Because we need to know one another. We need to enjoy one another. That's essential to our unity. But that ultimately is not the basis upon which our unity is built. Otherwise, we're just a social club. you got to have the fellowship, but it's all built upon the truth. The truth is the ground of our unity. And the truth, the greater agreement on the truth, the greater the unity will be. And that's the difference between maybe a Reformed church and a broad evangelical church. More broad evangelical is, let's find the least common denominator. So that we all, we have big crowds. And we get together with all these other types of Christians. Okay, that's good in some sense, but in a local church? If you build a local church on the least common denominator, you're going to starve Christians. You're going to open the door to heresy and error. And you're going to produce weak and immature and shallow Christians. Converts. So, unity is built upon the truth. The deeper, or the, mo, the, the more specific a truth, the deeper the unity. And accountability as well. I mentioned this before too. It helps maintain the purity of the church, maintain the purity of its membership. Uh, it gives a standard for false teaching. It protects the church from, from the pastors or any other false teacher in their midst. I got five minutes. How does a confession function at CRBC? It is. Now, what I'm answering here is just so you know, in case you aren't aware of how, the, 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 how it functions in a practical level here. Um, it is the standard of teaching and preaching, it's the standard for officers. To be an elder or a deacon, you must agree with the confession of faith. Not as an infallible document, not every word in the confession, but you must believe in every doctrine the confession teaches. It's not on par with Scripture, but it is a summary. It's the standard for formal interchurch communion. And what I mean by that, not that we can't have a joint worship service with Presbyterian, but we're talking about what kind of churches are we going to plant? What kind of missionaries are we going to send out? What kind of men are we going to ordain? What kind of, of, of ministries are we going to lend our money to? It provides the standard of that in this church. It's a means of preserving and passing down the faith from officer to officer, member to member, children to children. I mentioned this before. Is it necessary to fully agree with the confession for membership? Uh, no, it is not. We distinguish between subscription of members and subscription for officers. Membership requires uh, an agreement with its primary doctrines. You can't be a member if you deny the Trinity. Okay? 
It provides a general agreement with a whole. You may not be a Baptist. That's okay. You may not believe what it says about the end times. That's okay. You may not believe what it says about the Pope being the Antichrist. That's okay. You may not believe what it says about six-day creation. You may not believe what it says about elect infants. And you're like, what are all these things? Well, we're going to get to those. But a general agreement with the whole is necessary for membership. And ultimately, where there is... Uh, areas in which you differ, a humble, teachable spirit to the confession as the doctrinal standard of the church. You may disagree with something like baptism, but, but you can't hold court and try to convince people of your view. That's being disruptive. All right. Closing exhortation is to read and study and know our confession. Don't just read it as a part of the membership process. It is a systematic theology in miniature. It's very profitable for you to know it. It encompasses many other creeds and confessions of the past. It will help you benefit from the preaching and the teaching and your own Bible reading. Know what you believe and why you believe it. My recommendation is read a paragraph or two every time you read your Bible. And you'll get through it several times in a year. Uh, Just a real healthy way to be involved in the life of the church. And trust me when I say, uh, this thing has been around for as long as it has for a reason. It is, it's amazing. Even if you don't agree with everything in it, it will richly bless you in your study and in your uh, devotion. I don't have time for my closing question. um, So... I was going to ask you guys, but I'm just going to, I got to wrap up right now. Um, The closing question is, if we hold to a confession, do we undermine the ultimate authority of Scripture in our church? And the answer that, that I was going to give is that no for three reasons. One, we believe the confession is an accurate summary of Scripture, like the Trinity, If you say you must hold to the Trinity, well, that's not in the Bible. Does that undermine Scripture? No, it does not. It just puts truth in other words. Um, Another answer would be everybody has a confession, whether you write it down or not. So um, just having it on paper doesn't um, change things here. And also we would say, again, it's not necessary for salvation. It's only necessary for fellowship in our church. It's voluntary. Whether you join us or not. If you don't agree with the confession, that's fine. You can still be a part of another church. You can still be a Christian. Obviously, you can go pastor another church if you want to enter ministry. But it is necessary in our fellowship. And in that way, it reflects chapter 1, paragraph 1, that Scripture is the ultimate standard.